the wish on your tongue as you cross. What the bridge cannot hear cannot fall. For the river would carry your hopes to the sea, to the net of a stranger, to the silt bed of dreams. Hold the wish on your tongue as you cross, and on the far side, let the wish go first. This month, we have a whole pontoon of items spanning the subject of bridges, from A.A. Milne on one side to Giles Dickens on the other, from a love-locked bridge over the Seine to a bridge locked in battle over the Derwent. Listen out for Isambard Kingdom Brunel, too, in this, the February edition of the Worcester Talking Magazine. But first... Happy New Year! No, we're not crackers, but they are Chinese crackers, because it's Chinese New Year. We have quite a strong Chinese community here in Worcester, and the 2nd of February sees members of the Quidditang Martial Arts Centre celebrate the new Chinese Year of the Rat in deafening style. John Plush went to hear what the row was all about. To mark Chinese New Year in Worcester, we have a high street full of lions. Not real ones, you understand, but quite frightening all the same. They're very highly coloured, very athletic and very noisy, as you can hear. Of course, it's not the lions themselves making, making the noise. It's the, group, it's the group of musicians that, that accompanies them. I'm standing next to Nick Greenland, who is a drummer and therefore one of the noisiest. Nick, I can see that the drum you're playing is also highly decorated and it's very large and bulbous, not at all like popular Western drums. And you're not playing from music either. Yeah, line dance music is slightly different because normally the dancers perform to the music, whereas the drum here follows the lion, so it is semi-choreographed. The drummer needs to be able to follow what the lion's doing, so the drum matches the uh, matches the feelings of the lion. So it can be quite quiet, it can be quite loud. So the drum actually follows the lion. The lion is free to do whatever it wants. So the drum follows the lion. Uh, the cymbals and the gong follow the drum. So the idea the idea is is we all follow on together. So yes, it is it's semi choreographed, but also if you can imagine if we were in restaurants and things, there isn't an awful lot of space. Sometimes you have to make things up on the spot and um, try the best we can. The dance troupe, who have attracted a very large crowd here today, are all trained at the Cui de Tang Martial Arts School in Worcester under Lizzie Rodriguez. Lizzie, although you've steeped yourself in Chinese life and and customs, neither you nor any of your troupe, I think, here today uh, are actually Chinese. I'm not Chinese, no, and it is highly unusual for a completely Western team to be performing such a traditional routine and um, to have a Kung Fu school with the traditions that we've got. We're the only school in Europe, we're the only school outside of China that practices what we do and that's a very big responsibility, especially for non-Chinese people, to bring something that's so traditional all the way over here to the UK and, and like you say, not, not have a Chinese face, not be traditionally what people expect. Tell me about the lions. Um, because we're a traditional lion dance team, we have three types of lion. 
which represent three characters in Chinese history. There's a book called The Romance of the Three Kingdoms, and um, in there, there was three characters called Zhang Fei, Guan Yu, and Liu Bei, who was the emperor, the yellow emperor of China. Um, and those three characters are transferred into the lions. Can you describe one of your lions? I can. The, the lions are made from a bamboo frame, paper mache over the top, a costume that has two people inside. Um, and the elements of the creature actually originate from a, a dream that was uh, described by the Yellow Emperor to his, some of his um, artists in court, and they drew what he described the best description that they could think of um, from what he told them was a lion. But obviously in China, lions aren't native and they didn't know what they looked like, so they assumed that this was what it was. Um, it has the horn of a unicorn. It has the teeth of the white tiger. It has the forehead of the dragon and the back of a turtle, the shell of the turtle on the back, which is very round and very solid. Um, it has the tail of a snake, and um, the colours the colours vary. You can have all sorts of different uh, types of of lion, um, but for us, it's a black lion, a red lion, and a yellow lion. Firecrackers, extremely noisy. What do they mean? They are incredibly loud. Um, the firecrackers. Um, are an essential part of Chinese New Year. It wouldn't be Chinese New Year without firecrackers as it wouldn't be bonfire night without fireworks. Um, they are always set up um, and used either at midnight at the beginning of New Year or um, at the beginning of a lion dance or the opening of a business. Um, the idea is that the firecrackers are set off and the noise scares away any evil spirits, clears the way for the new year um, and generally makes people happy and excited for the dance that's about to happen because they are, they are incredibly loud. <laughs> what can what you teach offer to a, a visually impaired person? I believe that what we do is so much more than just uh, martial arts. It has a huge benefit on uh, many aspects of your life, food and drink. We teach about um, Chinese tea culture, we teach meditation, we teach Qigong. Um, and even martial arts, there is absolutely no reason why somebody who's visually impaired or any kind of ability or disability can't participate in any type of martial art. Um, I think it's really important that you don't project an image that it's a closed shop because that's not, that's not the case. We do Chinese art, we do Chinese language, we do um, so many different aspects. Yeah, it could enrich anyone's life. When you're giving a display, um, you give out red packets to the children in the crowd. What's all that about? So uh, the red packets in Mandarin called Hongbao. Um, Hongbao are given by all Chinese people during Chinese New Year 
with money inside. Uh, normally it's uh, family elders giving the packets to children and the children will always give uh, envelope back. During the lion dance what we um, what we do is we go before the performance and we hand out the empty red packets and um, generally children because they really love doing it place a few coins just a small amount of lucky money inside and when the lion visits them they feed it into the lion's mouth for good luck traditionally during a lion dance that's how payment was passed uh, people would feed the lion with the red packets as, as payment for, to the martial artists to keep them keep them going the dance always consists of the same elements you have the beginning of the dance which is always the bows which is when you heard the drum rolls and the lion uh, bowing in three directions which is very traditional then you have sometimes the lion uh, sleeping and then waking up so the dance starts quite quiet quite uh, low in energy and then it builds up to um, a part of the dance which is always essential which is called the ching uh, Qing is a word for green in, Chi in Mandarin Chinese and it represents money. So the, the lion will eat the green, which is usually a lettuce or spring onions or some kind of um, puzzle which he has to solve, gets to the lettuce and then um, the crescendo of the dance is when the lion spits out the lettuce, um, which is good luck, so if you get hit by the lettuce, that's great. That means that you're very auspicious for the new year. It means that you will be prosperous. Um, and then the lion, so, so the highest, the loudest part of the dance, the drums and the cymbals always play the loudest at that point. And then the lion will always bow traditionally at the end um, for, the, yeah, for the end of the dance. Well, listen, Rodriguez. Che, che. Which I hope means... <laughs> Um, thank you very much. It does, yes, yeah. <laughs> Maybe Mandarin is not John's strong suit. The Chinese Association of Worcester has been celebrating their new year in the centre of the city for almost 20 years now. But chinoiserie has long been a part of British culture, not least in Worcestershire. The Gardner Croom Court, for example, has sported a Chinese-inspired footbridge for more than 250 years. Phil is a great fan of Croom and has written us a poem about its Chinese footbridge. Just to the south of the walls of Croom Court meanders a river, not quite what you thought. River, we say for convenience sake, actually man-made. In fact, it's a lake. Dug for its beauty with a serpentine line, though also for boating, promenading when fine. Capability Brown was designer in fashion, the 6th Earl of Coventry putting the cash in. Now you could cross the river at each of its ends, but it's quite a long way when with well-to-do friends, talking matters of state with those of blue blood, not best done when wheezing and covered in mud. To the Earl and C. Brown the solution was plain, dig deeper for cash, so, ignoring the pain, a bridge was constructed, an inverted smile, a bridge for the moment and Chinese in style. And so from the year 1700 and odd, it carried rich couples and those on their tod. King George, Queen Victoria, countesses and earls, bejewelled with gold, hung with diamonds and pearls. But in time the bridge rotted, it splintered and fell, a mirror to social upheaval as well. 
A modest replacement was put in its place, but hardly a structure with presence or grace. But now there's a new bridge in striking green oak, put up by the Nat Trust, which bought it bespoke. It copies the first one, but this is quite clever. It's open for everyone, almost forever. Just in case you missed what I said before Phil read that poem, he wrote it himself. Great piece of work, Phil. The timber of the original bridge at Croom rotted, but even a stone construction can fall prey to the ravages of time and man. Drawing parallels with dividing and bridging human relationships, one of the most analysed poems of modern times is Mending Wall by Robert Frost. Catherine. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that sends the frozen groundswell under it and spills the upper boulders in the sun and makes gaps even two can pass abreast. The work of hunters is another thing. I've come after them and made repair where they have left not one stone on a stone, but they would have the rabbit out of hiding to please the yelping dogs. The gaps I mean, no one has seen them made or heard them made, but at spring mending time we find them there. I let my neighbour know beyond the hill, and on a day we meet to walk the line and set the wall between us once again. We keep the wall between us as we go. To each the boulders that have fallen to each. And some are loaves, and some so nearly balls, we have to use a spell to make them balance. Stay where you are until our backs are turned. We wear our fingers rough with handling them. Oh, just another kind of outdoor game, one on a side. It comes to little more. There where it is, we do not need the wall. He is all pine, and I am an apple orchard. My apple trees will never get across and eat the cones under his pines, I tell him. He only says, good fences make good neighbours. Spring is the mischief in me. And I wonder if I could put a notion in his head. Why do they make good neighbours? Isn't it where there are cows? But here there are no cows. Before I built a wall, I'd asked to know what I was walling in or walling out and to whom I was like to give offence. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. I could say elves to him, but it's not elves exactly, and I'd rather he said it for himself. I see him there, bringing a stone grasped firmly by the top in each hand, like an old stone savage armed. He moves in darkness, as it seems to me, not of woods only, and the shade of trees. He will not go behind his father's saying, and he likes having thought of it so well, he says again, good fences make good neighbours. A wall, seen as both boundary and bridge. The proverb quoted in that poem, good fences make good neighbours, is often spoken, although its origins are unknown. But we do know that the game of poo sticks was invented by a fluffy brown bear back in the 1920s and has been popular ever since the publication of The House at Poo Corner by A.A. A. Milne. The annual World Poo Sticks Championships draws some 500 contestants, a crowd of over a 1,000, and raises about £3,000 a year for local and national charities. Being a bear of very little brain, 
Pooh himself made no written account of how the sport began, but luckily Mr Milne wrote it down for him. Are you sitting comfortably? Then this is what he wrote. By the time it came to the edge of the forest, the stream had grown up, so that it was almost a river. And being grown up, it didn't run and jump and sparkle along as it used to do when it was younger, but moved more slowly, for it knew now where it was going, and it said to itself, There's no hurry, we shall get there some day. But all the little streams higher up in the forest went this way and that, quickly, eagerly, having so much to find out before it was too late. There was a broad track, almost as broad as a road, leading from the outland to the forest. But before it could come to the forest, it had to cross this river. So, where it crossed, there was a wooden bridge, almost as broad as a road, with wooden rails on each side of it. Christopher Robin could just get his chin onto the top rail if he wanted to, but it was more fun to stand on the bottom rail so that he could lean right over and watch the river slipping slowly away beneath him. Pooh could get his chin onto the bottom rail if he wanted to, but it was more fun to lie down and get his head under it and watch the river slipping slowly away beneath him. And this was the only way in which Piglet and Roo could watch the river at all, because they were too small to reach the bottom rail, so they would lie down and watch it, and it slipped away very slowly, being in no hurry to get there. One day, when Pooh was walking towards this bridge, he was trying to make up a piece of poetry about fir cones, because there they were, lying about on each side of him, and he felt singy. So he picked a fir cone up and looked at it and said to himself, this is a very good fir cone and something ought to rhyme to it, but he couldn't think of anything. And then this came into his head suddenly. Here is a mystery about a little fir tree. Owl says it's his tree and Kanga says it's her tree. Which doesn't make sense, said Pooh, because Kanga doesn't live in a tree. He'd just come to the bridge and not looking where he was going, he tripped over something and the fir cone jerked out of his paw and into the river. Bother, said Pooh, as it floated slowly under the bridge. And he went back to get another fir cone, which had a rhyme to it. But then he thought that he'd just look at the river instead, because it was a peaceful sort of day. So he lay down and looked at it, and it slipped slowly away beneath him. And suddenly, there was his fir cone, slipping away too. That's funny, said Pooh. I dropped it on the other side, said Pooh. And it came out on this side. I wonder if it would do it again. And he went back for some more fir cones. It did. It kept on doing it. Then he dropped two in at once and leant over the bridge to see which of them would come out first. And one of them did. But as they were both the same size, he didn't know if it was the one which he wanted to win or the other one. So the next time he dropped one big one and one little one. And the big one came out first, which is what he had said it would do. And the little one came out last, which was what he had said it would do. So he had won twice. And when he went home for tea, he had won 36 and lost 28, which meant that he was, that he'd have, well, you take 28 from 36 and that's what he was instead of the other way round. 
And that was the beginning of the game called Poo Sticks, which Pooh invented, and which he and his friends used to play on the edge of the forest. But they played with sticks instead of fir cones, because they were much easier to mark. Here's JP with another sort of bridge. What tune was that? It sounded like a fragment, part of something else. Well, that's because it was. It's the eight bars that lead into the last line of a popular Fats Waller song. Here it is again. And this is what it leads into. So those eight bars were part of Honeysuckle Rose, the part known as the middle eight or bridge because it's usually eight bars long and comes in the middle of the verse, forming a bridge from the melody of the first two lines, which are the same as each other, to the last line, which is the same again. It's a form known in music circles as A-A-B-A. The first two lines have melody A, the third line has melody B, and the last line goes back to melody A. The B section, the bridge, is usually in a style contrasting with the two A sections and provides not just a link, but a relief from the harmonies and melodies placed either side of it. A-A-B-A is a classic Tin Pan Alley form, followed by many popular songs and indeed some more classical stuff too, even church music. Recognise this? That was a short bridge, only four bars long, but you can easily hear what it leads into, no? Can you put a name to it? Here it is again. And it leads into... Deck the halls with boughs of holly. The bridge can last much longer, linking passages which are much more serious and substantial than those few bars in Deck the Halls, but it's used mostly in popular music, starting in the early 1900s. George Gershwin. And that links into, well, you guess. If you press your track back button, that's the leftmost button of the three towards the front of your player, you can hear it again. And if you get it, make a mental note of the title, and we'll come back to it later to see if you're right. And just in case you needed any help, it's from Gershwin's 1930 show, Girl Crazy. We started with Fats Waller's Honeysuckle Rose, which he wrote with Andy Razaf for a review called Load of Coal in 1929. The bridge of that song caused some trouble in the writing. Barry Singer, in his book Black and Blue, The Life and Lyrics of Andy Razaf, writes, When it came time to finish up the third song for Load of Coal, which was Honeysuckle Rose, Razaf telephoned Waller to run it by him. And they put the finishing touches to the song, including a new version of the eight-bar bridge, because Waller, not having written down his original, had forgotten what he'd written the day before. 
After untold minutes of desperate humming and shouting, Razaf left the phone for a moment to try what they had on the piano. By the time he returned, Waller had hung up. Waller also wrote this next one with Razaf, along with Harry Brooks, in the same year as Honeysuckle Rose, and for the same venue in Harlem, Connie's Inn. It soon transferred to Broadway, and made Louis Armstrong an overnight sensation when he performed it in the interval as a trumpet solo. Here's the middle eight. What's that going to be? Press your track back button to hear it again. Kurt Feil, the composer of the Threepenny Opera, also used the AABA format in a well-known song he wrote for the 1938 Broadway musical production Knickerbocker Holiday. It's a song about the brevity of life, likening the passing of the months to the passing of the years, and was first sung by the actor Walter Houston, father of John Houston, the famous movie director. This is Viles Bridge from that song to help you into it. Food for thought. I'll play it again now and we'll come back in a bit to find out the answers to all three. Now there's a challenge. We'll find out the answers at the end of the magazine. In the meantime, the prolific 19th century bridge designer Isambard Kingdom Brunel was once driven to a very different feat of engineering in order to save a life, his own. Jane. In the spring of 1843, Isambard Kingdom Brunel took a rare break from his labours. He was building the SS Great Britain, the largest and most challenging ship ever to come off the drawing board at that time, to amuse his children with a magic trick. Things didn't go quite to plan, however. Midway through the entertainment, Brunel accidentally swallowed a half-sovereign coin which he had secreted under his tongue. We may reasonably imagine Brunel's look of surprise, followed by consternation and perhaps a slight panic, as he felt the coin slide down his throat and lodge at the base of his trachea. It caused him no great pain, but it was uncomfortable and unnerving since he knew that if it shifted even slightly, it could choke him. Over the next few days, Brunel, his friends, colleagues, family and doctors attempted every remedy, from slapping him hard on the back to holding him aloft by the ankles. He was a small man and easily lofted, and shaking him vigorously, but nothing worked. Seeking an engineering solution, Brunel designed a contraption from which he could hang upside down and be swung in wide arcs in the hope that motion and gravity together would make the coin fall out. That didn't work either. 
Brunel's plight became the talk of the nation. Suggestions poured in from every quarter of the country and from abroad, but every attempted remedy failed. At length, the eminent physician, Sir Benjamin Brodie, decided to attempt a tracheotomy, a risky and disagreeable procedure. Without benefit of anaesthetic, the first use of anaesthetic in Britain was still three years off, Brodie made an incision in Brunel's throat and tried to extract the coin by reaching into his airway with long forceps. Brunel couldn't breathe and coughed so violently that the attempt had to be abandoned. Finally, on the 16th of May, more than six weeks after his ordeal began, Brunel had him strapped into his swinging contraption and set in motion. Almost immediately, the coin fell out and rolled across the floor. Very shortly afterwards, the eminent historian Thomas Babington Macaulay burst into the Athenium Club in Pall Mall and shouted, It's out! And everyone knew at once what he meant. Brunel lived the rest of his life without complications from the incident and, as far as is known, never put a coin in his mouth again. Well, that would have been rather silly. Charles Dickens featured many bridges in his writing, and London Bridge plays a crucial part in the fate of the character Nancy in Oliver Twist, soon to be murdered by her boyfriend, the vicious Bill Sykes. In this extract, two of Oliver's protectors, Rose Maley and Mr Brownlow, have agreed to meet Nancy secretly on the bridge, where they hope to discover important information about Oliver's parents, and thus who he might really be. We suspect that an inheritance is in the offing. Nancy is terrified of discovery, fearing, rightly as it turns out, that she might have been followed. The church clocks chimed three quarters past eleven as two figures emerged on London Bridge. One who advanced with a swift and rapid step was that of a woman who looked eagerly about her as though in quest of some expected object. The other figure was that of a man who slunk along in the deepest shadow he could find and at some distance accommodated his pace to hers, stopping when she stopped and as she moved again, creeping stealthily on but never allowing himself in the ardour of his pursuit to gain upon her footsteps. Thus they crossed the bridge, from the Middlesex to the Surrey shore, when the woman, apparently disappointed in her anxious scrutiny of the foot passengers, turned back. The movement was sudden, but he who watched her was not thrown off his guard by it, for, shrinking into one of the recesses which surmount the piers of the bridge, and leaning over the parapet the better to conceal his figure, he suffered her to pass on the opposite pavement. When she was about the same distance in advance as she had been before, he slipped quietly down and followed her again. At nearly the centre of the bridge, she stopped. The man stopped, too. It was a very dark night. The day had been unfavourable, and at that hour and place there were few people stirring. Such as there were hurried quickly past, very possibly without seeing, but certainly without noticing either the woman or the man who kept her in view. Their appearance was not calculated to attract the importunate regards of such of London's destitute population as chanced to take their way over the bridge that night in search of some cold arch or doorless hovel wherein to lay their heads. They stood there in silence, 
neither speaking nor spoken to by anyone who passed. A mist hung over the river, deepening the red glare of the fires that burnt upon the small craft moored off the different wharfs, and rendering darker and more indistinct the murky buildings on the banks. The old smoke-stained storehouses on either side rose heavy and dull from the dense mass of roofs and gables, and frowned sternly upon water too black to reflect even their lumbering shapes. The tower of old St. Saviour's Church and the spire of St. Magnus, so long the giant warders of the ancient bridge, were visible in the gloom, but the forest of shipping below bridge and the thickly scattered spires of churches above were nearly all hidden from sight. The girl had taken a few restless turns to and fro, closely watched meanwhile by her hidden observer, when the heavy bell of St. Paul's, the... The girl had taken a few restless turns to and fro, closely watched meanwhile by her hidden observer, when the heavy bell of St. Paul's tolled for the death of another day. Midnight had come upon the crowded city. The palace, the night cellar, the jail, the madhouse, the chambers of birth and death, of health and sickness, the rigid face of the corpse and the calm sleep of the child, midnight was upon them all. The hour had not struck two minutes when a young lady, accompanied by a grey-haired gentleman, alighted from a hackney carriage within the short distance of the bridge and, having dismissed the vehicle, walked straight towards it. They had scarcely set foot upon its pavement when the girl started and immediately made towards them. They walked onward, looking about them with the air of persons who entertained some very slight expectation which had little chance of being realised when they were joined suddenly by this new associate. They halted with an exclamation of surprise, but suppressed it immediately, for a man in the garments of a countryman came close up, rushed against them indeed, at that precise moment. "'Not here,' said Nancy hurriedly. "'I'm afraid to speak to you here. Come away, out of the public road, down the steps, yonder.' As she uttered these words, and indicated with a hand the direction in which she wished them to proceed, the countryman looked round, and, roughly asking what they took up the whole pavement for, passed on. The steps to which the girl had pointed were those which, on the Surrey bank and on the same side of the bridge of St Saviour's Church, form a landing stairs from the river. To this spot the man, bearing the appearance of a countryman, hastened unobserved, and after a moment's survey of the place he began to descend. These stairs are a part of the bridge. They consist of three flights, just below the end of the second, going down, the stone wall on the left terminates in an ornamental pilaster facing towards the Thames. At this point, the lower steps widen, so that a person turning that angle of the wall is necessarily unseen by any others on the stairs who chance to be above him, if only a step. The countryman looked hastily round. When he reached this point, and as there seemed no better place of concealment, and the tide being out, there was plenty of room. He slipped aside with his back to the pilaster and there waited, pretty certain that they would come no lower, and that even if he could not hear what was said, he could follow them again with safety. So tardily stole the time in this lonely place, and so eager was the spy to penetrate the motives of an interview so different from what he had been led to expect, that he more than once gave up the matter for lost, and persuaded himself either that they had stopped far above or had resorted to some entirely different spot to hold their mysterious conversation. 
He was on the point of emerging from his hiding place and regaining the road above when he heard the sound of footsteps and, directly afterwards, of voices almost close at his ear. He drew himself up straight against the wall and, scarcely breathing, went on listening attentively. Coming up, Peter White on the start of his career in broadcasting. An interview with world-famous cellist Raphael Valfish. Another little quiz, a bit of history, both social and pretty antisocial, and the answers to John's musical bridges. But first, a completely different sort of bridge, the card game. This is a poem written by the Australian writer Clarence Michael James Stanislaus Dennis, which, although it takes its title from the game Dummy Bridge, it deals with rather weightier issues than the title suggests. It's read here for us by Stephen Buckley. If I'd have played me jack on that here ten, says Peter Begg, I might have made the lot. How could you, box old Paul, how could you, when I had my queen behind? Says Begg, what rot, I'll slug away my king to take that trick. Which one? <laughs> Say, ain't your head a trifle thick? Now, don't you see that when I plays my king, I'll give your queen a chance and lost the slam. But Paul, he says he don't see no such thing. So Big gets hot and starts to loose a dam. He twigs the missus just in time to check and makes it dash <laughs> and gets red down his neck. There's me and Peter Begg and old man Paul, neighbours of mine that farm a bit close by. Just once a week or so we makes a school and gives this game a dummy bridge a fly. Doreen, she has her sewing by the fire, the kid's in bed, and here's my heart's desire. Home comfort, peace, the picture of my wife happy at work, my neighbours gathered round all friendly like. What more is there in life? I've searched a bit, but better I ain't found. Doreen, she seems content, but in her eye I've seen real pity when the talk gets high. This evening we had started off real hot. Two little slams and pull without a score, still looking sore about the cards he'd got. When sudden-like, a knock comes at the door. A visitor growls big to cruel our game, and looks at me as though I was to blame. Just as Doreen goes out, I see her grin. Deal em up quick, I whispers. Grab your hand and look real occupied when they comes in. Perhaps they'll have the sense to understand. If it's a man, maybe he'll make up a flaw. But if... Then Mrs Flood comes in the door. "'Twas old Ma Flood, her face wrapped in a smile. "'Now, boys, she says, don't let me spoil your game. "'I'll just chat with Dora in a little while, "'but if you stop, I'll be ashamed I came.' "'And then she waves a letter in her hand. "'Says she, our Jim's a soldier. Ain't it grand?' "'Good boy,' says Paul. "'Let's see, I'll make it arts.' Double shouts Beg. And he's been in a fight, says Mrs. Flood, out in them foreign parts. French, I suppose, I can't pronounce it right. He's been once wounded somewhere in the leg. Here, Bill, you gone to sleep? asks Peter Begg. I place my queen of spades and plays her bad. Begg snorts. My boy, says Mrs. Flood. My Jim. King here, laughs Poole. That's the last spade I had. 
Doreen, she smiles. I'm glad you've heard from him. We're done, groans Big. Why did you nurse your ace? My Jim. And there was sunlight in her face. I always thought a lot of Jim I did, says Big. He does your credit. Here, your deal. That's so, says Paul. He was an all right kid. No trumps. I'm sorry that's the way you feel. It'll take you all your time to make the book. And then Doreen sends me the wireless look. I gets the SOS, but Beg is keen. My dearly yaps, what rotten cards I get. Old Mrs Flood sits closer to Doreen. The best, she whispers. I ain't told you yet. I strains me ears and leads me king of trumps. Ace here, grins Beg. Paul throws his queen and thumps. That saves me Jack, Al's beg. Tough luck, old sport. Says Mrs Flood, Jim's won a medal too for doing something brave at Bully Court. Play on, play on, growls Beg. It's up to you. Then I reneges and trumps me partner's ace and Paul gets sudden murder in his face. I'm sick of this here game. He grunts it's tame. Righto, I chips. Suppose we toss it in. Beg don't say nothing, so we sling the game. On my wife's face, I twigs a tiny grin. Finished, says she, surprised. Well, perhaps you're right. It looks to me like arts was trumps tonight. And so they was. And say the game was grand. Two hours we sat while that old mother told about her Jim, his letter in her hand. And on her face, a glowing look that rolled the miles all up that lie twixt France and here and found her son, and brought him very near. A game of bridge it was, with arts for trumps. We was the dummies, sitting silent there. I knew the men like me was feeling chumps, fooling with cards while this was in the air. It took Doreen to shove us in our place. Our mother held the lot right from the ace. She told us how he said he'd writ before, and how the letters must have gone astray, and how the stern old father still was sore, but looked like he'd be softening day by day. How pride in Jim peeps out behind his frown, and how the old fool hopes to hide it down. I knew, she says, I never doubted Jim. But what could any mother say or do when prime folks ask what become of him? But drop her eyes and say she never knew. Now I can lift me head to that sly glance and say... Jim's fighting with the rest in France. And when she's gone, us four, we don't require no gossiping to keep us in employ. Old Paul, he sits staring hard into the fire. I guess that he was thinking of his boy, who's been right in it from the very start. And Paul was thinking of her father's part. And then he speaks. This war has turned as hard. Suppose four year ago you'd said to me that I'd sit heedless staring at a card while that old mother... <laughs> Good Lord, says he. It takes the women for to put us wise to playing games in wartime. And he sighs. And here Doreen sets out to put him right. There's games and games, she says. When women starts a hand at bridge like she has played tonight, it's nature teaching them to make it arts. The other suits are yours, she says. But then that's as it should be, seeing you are men. Maybe, says Paul, and both gets up to go. 
I stand beside the door when they are gone, watching their lanterns swing into and fro, and hear Beg's voice as they goes trudging on. If you had led that queen, we might have made... Rubbish, shouts Paul. You mucked it with your spade. Clarence Dennis's Dummy Bridge, read there by our own Stephen Buckley. Listeners to BBC Radio 4's In Touch will be familiar with the voice of Peter White, the weekly presenter of that programme, and also of you and yours. Although he was born in Winchester, Peter attended New College Worcester in the 1950s. In The Guardian recently, he wrote of how he became involved in broadcasting. His story starts with Christmas 1958. Catherine. It's eight o'clock on Christmas morning and Uncle Tom wants to hear the news. My 11-year-old self is wondering why on earth grown-ups want to hear the news on Christmas Day when there are vital things to be done, such as handing out presents. And then, while I'm only half listening, something weird happens. The Greenwich time pips start. Surely we've already heard those. And then the boring man with the plummy voice begins going on about a Christmas message to the world from the Vatican. Surely that's been on already, too. It's my older brother Colin who gets it. Pete, Pete, it's a tape recorder, you idiot. We've got our tape recorder. The penny drops. Uncle Tom and my dad have recorded the headlines and are playing them back. I think it's often quite rare to experience real excitement over a present. In my experience, children are as good as adults at knowing what's expected of them and simulating joyful surprise, even when they don't feel it. But for me, this was one of those rare moments where my insides gave an involuntary lurch and the world did a little somersault. Colin and I had both been blind from birth, and at this point we're spending most of our time at a special boarding school, Worcester College for the Blind, now called New College Worcester. In the late 1950s, Britain had just reached the point when exciting consumer goods were coming within reach of the not-really-rich. And at Worcester, reel-to-reel tape recorders were definitely the consumer gizmos of choice. For blind kids... They would trump cameras every time, especially at this moment when rock and roll was more of a religion than a pastime. For us, you could spot the better-off kids not by the clothes they wore or the holidays they boasted about, but by the tape recorders they owned. So, in our class, Ian Hopkin was marked out as something of a plutocrat by his Brunel recorder. Fortunately for us, Hoppy was a generous soul and gave us all access to his recordings of Tony Hancock and Peter Sellers. Still, a recorder of your own was the height of aspiration, and Colin, better informed and more realistic about family finances than me, had no real expectations. I realised much later that at this time my dad, a very good joiner and carpenter, was probably earning about £8 a week. The tape recorder my parents had bought us, although nowhere near at the top of the range, would have cost more than four times his weekly wage. My parents could only afford it by borrowing the money from Uncle Tom, who had a thriving grocery business. Family or not, I know my mum and dad would have thought long and hard before incurring the debt. 
The new toy, mains-powered and the size of a small suitcase, dominated the rest of Christmas Day and the remainder of the holidays. Once we'd mastered the controls, Colin was the technical one, but was surprisingly patient in sharing his discoveries with me. We recorded everything in sight, each other, our parents, the milkman, the dog, and we very quickly learned the fun to be had at catching people unawares. Uncle Tom, at whose house we were staying over the holiday, got an early reward for his generous loan. Some friends he regarded as a little pretentious were coming over for Boxing Day. My aunt and uncle always referred to the husband as the Mayor of Romford. Whether that was because he was, or just talked as if he was, I'm not sure I ever learned. Uncle Tom was keen Bill should be made to listen to his chirpy Cockney accent, which he claimed he didn't have. Things like this mattered 60 years ago. My task was to record them when they arrived and then, at a quiet moment, play it back to set Bill straight. Delighted to be trusted in this adult conspiracy of inverted snobbery, I set the machine going as they came up the path. The reaction was more than Uncle Tom could have hoped for. I think he decided at that point that his £30-odd investment had already been more than repaid. It wasn't the first time I'd been entranced by a tape recorder. I vividly remember, aged four, coming into a room and hearing a child singing tunelessly and raucously. I stopped dead. It's you, Dad said. Noisy, aren't you? I didn't understand. It turned out that he'd borrowed a tape recorder because he and some friends were writing and performing songs and sketches for his former school's annual concert. And so for the first time, in the same way that a sighted child might react to seeing themselves in a mirror or a photograph, I got the sense of myself as a separate person, existing outside my head and experienced by other people. It was exciting and embarrassing not a bad summing up of my later life as a broadcaster. I really took my first steps down that path when I got back to school after the holidays ended. I was lucky to be in a class of imaginative and creative boys. Yes, sadly Worcester was single sex then. And it wasn't long before all of us radio-obsessed, we started to make our own embryo radio programmes. While studio managers at the BBC were still banging coconuts together to represent horses' hooves, we were using the little oblong pieces of lead we needed to represent numbers when doing sums to recreate shrapnel for our First World War battles, and very effective they were, dropped onto a desk from a great height. Meanwhile, I would wander around the school with my rudimentary microphone, commenting in the voices of my radio idols, the hushed, reverential tones of Richard Dimbleby, the gravel-voiced war correspondent René Cutforth, and, favourite of all, the mellow Hampshire burr of John Arlott. Most of what I described was pure imagination, although occasionally we would stage real events to heighten the excitement. Particularly memorable was a boxing match between Mick and Jeff, respectively the strongest and the gamest boys in the class, both totally blind. The commentary came from the only one of us with a little bit of sight, in a very passable imitation of the boxing commentator Raymond Glendenning. 
The strong boy beat the game boy, by the way. The acquisition of the tape recorder coincided with the formation of our own band, Reg Webb, Andy Woods and, yes, Peter White, imaginatively called the W Brothers and destined to be the greatest group ever had not the Beatles come along and pinched our best material. Reg and Andy were good musicians and went on to have professional careers. I wasn't in their musical class, but made up for it with what I thought at the time was my witty banter to introduce our songs. At one of our concerts, a girl actually screamed, although it could have been that someone trod on her foot. In fact, the biggest challenge was not finding things to do with a tape recorder, but wrestling it away from Colin. It was, after all, a joint present. His generosity on the first day we got it didn't extend to his handing it over to his ham-fisted brother at school. I can still hear the phrases, you'll break it or lose it. You'll scramble up all the tapes. And annoyingly, I did do all of those things. On one fraught occasion, trying in front of an open window to disentangle the hopelessly knotted tape that contained my latest radio gem, I managed to get yards of the stuff enmeshed in an overhanging tree. But ten years later, by which time I'd begun and abandoned a university law course, it was the confidence gained from those early excursions into sound that had me walking into the local radio station in Southampton, trying to sell myself as the next Robin Day. It all nearly ended there, as the receptionist told me there were no vacancies and that I'd have to apply to the BBC in London through the normal channels. Luck intervened. A producer charged with putting together a weekly programme for blind people saw me and my white cane being ushered into the lift. As I prepared to hitchhike my disillusioned way back to university, he rang me at home and asked if I would go back to Southampton to see him. Twenty-five years after that, I presented my first report for BBC TV's Six O'Clock News, a date with the telly my dad had never missed. Although by then he'd been dead for more than a decade, I like to think he'd have realised that his inspired Christmas present really had not just changed but shaped my life. Do you know that very heartwarming story generated well over 200 responses? some of them very lengthy and all of them very touching, when it was put on the Guardian website back in December last year. Anyway, this is February, and in addition to the Chinese dedicating the next 12 months to a new animal, this is the time of year when love is in the air, in anticipation of Valentine's Day. In Matador, Matt Hirschberger writes, about two months... Before my wife and I got engaged, we went to Paris. We were both big fans of the show Parks and Recreation. And in the show, the two main leads declare their love for each other by putting a love lock on Paris's Pont des Arts bridge. If you've travelled to any major city that has a bridge in the past five years, you have seen a love lock. They are everywhere now. The idea is simple. A couple crosses the bridge and puts a padlock on a section of the chain-link fence. The lock represents their love, and it will stay there for all of eternity. They then dramatically hurl the keys to the lock into the body of water under the bridge. At the point in my life where my wife and I were on the Pont des Arts, I was already a travel writer, so I knew the practice was kind of lame and played out. 
but it was a nice time in our relationship and I wanted to commemorate that. So we pulled out a tiny little baggage lock, etched our initials onto it with the key and placed it on one of the less crowded sections of the fence and, of course, threw the key into the river. A few months later, the Pont des Arts collapsed, or rather, a section of the fence that had been covered in locks collapsed. Individual locks are not very heavy, but hundreds of locks at a time are, and the poor chain-link fence just couldn't take it anymore. The bridge had become a huge attraction in and of itself. Hawkers sold locks to passing couples on the bridge, and in spite of warnings from French officials that it was not really good for the bridge to be weighed down by tens of thousands of locks, the tradition exploded, so what happened was inevitable. Eventually, French officials took down all of the locks, including presumably our own, with their final weight clocking in at a staggering 45 tonnes. They never ended up fishing the over 700,000 keys out of the Seine. The newly installed fences were not chain-link and couldn't be locked onto, and Paris decided instead to make the bridge about sculpture rather than love. But it was too late. The love locks had spread to 11 other bridges in Paris, and love locks today can be seen on New York's Brooklyn Bridge, against the wishes of city officials, Cologne's Hohenzollern Bridge, and at the Love Bell on Japan's Enoshima Island. Love locks are now a global phenomenon. What is most interesting is that the Lovelock tradition didn't even start in Paris. It started in a town called Vrnjaka Banja in Serbia. There, shortly before the First World War, a young man and woman fell in love and would meet every night at the Most Ljubavi Bridge in town. But the man went into the military and while abroad he met and fell in love with someone else. The young woman died of heartbreak and superstitious local women began going to the bridge, writing the names of themselves and their lovers on padlocks and locking them to the bridge, in the hope that it would bind their paramours to home. It is an almost blindingly romantic story, but the tradition petered out after the war, until Serbian poet Dusanka Maksimovic wrote a poem about the story, and it took off again, but still only at the Most Ljubavi. The origin of the current wave of Lovelock bridges probably comes from a single Italian writer named Federico Moccia. Moccia wrote a book called I Want You that featured a couple who put a Lovelock on a lamppost on Rome's 2,100-year-old Pontimilvio Bridge. The book was popular and spawned a movie adaptation and shortly after the movie came out, the lamppost partially collapsed people started putting their locks elsewhere on the bridge and the Roman government began fining people 50 euros if they were caught putting love locks on the bridge. From there, the tradition spread to Asia and the rest of Europe, eventually becoming an issue in France in 2010. We can probably thank the current explosion of love locks, at least in part, to parks and recreation. But the tradition was getting out of control before the airing of that episode. Now, all over the world, city governments are begging people to please stop weighing down their bridges with locks of love. Despite having been around since before the First World War, love locks were still a thing of the distant future 
in the year when war came to the East Riding of Yorkshire at Stamford Bridge. The invaders of 1066 were not from Central Europe, but Vikings from the north, led by Harald Herdrada, the King of Norway, along with the English King Harald's treacherous brother Tosti, our own Earl of Northumberland. Lawrence Binion, famous for his poem For the Fallen, wrote a poem about it. Phil. Hasty Harold, hasty north, Norway's ships in Humber crowd. Tell Hardrada, Sigurdsson, for thy ruin this has done, England for his own hath vowed. The earls have fought, the earls have fled, from time to ooze the homestead's flame. York, behind her battered wall, waits the instant of her fall and the shame of England's name. Traitor Tosti's banner streams with the invading raven's wing, black the land and red the skies, where Northumbria bleeds and cries for thy vengeance, England's king. Since that frighted summons flew, not twelve suns have sprung and set, northward marching night and day as King Harold kept his way, the hour is come, the hosts are met. Mourn through thin September mist, flames on moving helm and man. On either side of Derwent's banks are the Northmen's shielded ranks, but silent stays the English van. A rider to Earl Tosti comes, turn thee, Tosti, to thy kin. Harold, thy brother, brings thee sign, all Northumbria shall be thine. Make thy peace ere the fray begin. And if I turn me to my kin, and if I stay the Northman's hand, what will Harold give to his friend this day, to Norway's king? What price will he pay out of this English land? That rider laughed a mighty laugh, six full feet of English soil, or, since he is taller than the most, seven feet shall he have to boast. This Harold gives for Norway's spoil. What rider was he that spoke thee fair, Harold Hardrada to Tosti cried. It was Harold of England spoke me fair, but now of his bane let him beware. Set on, set on, we will wreck his pride. Sudden arrows flashed and flew, dark lines of English leapt and rushed, with sound of storm that stung like hail, and steel rang sharp on supple mail, with thrust that pierced, with blow that crushed. And sullenly back in fierce amaze the Northmen gave to the riverside, the main of their host on the further shore could help them nothing, pressed so sore. In the ooze they fought, in the wave they died. On a narrow bridge alone, one man, the English mass and fury stays. The spears press close, the timber cracks, but high he swings his dreadful axe, with every stroke a life he slays. Till pierced at last from the stream below, he falls. The Northmen break and shout, forward they hurl in wild onset, but as struggling fish in a mighty net, the English hem them round about. Now Norway's king grew battle-mad, mad with joy of his strength he smote, but as he hewed his battle-path and heaped the dead men for a swathe, an arrow clove him through the throat. And where he slaughtered, red he fell. Oh, then was Norway's hope undone. Doomed men were they that fought in vain. Hardrada slain and Tosti slain. The field was lost. The field was won. York this night rings all her bells. Harold feasts within her halls. The captains lift their wine cups. Hark, what hooves come thudding through the dark and sudden stop. What silence falls. 
Spent with riding, staggers in one who cries, Fell news I bring, Duke William has all passed to see, His host is camped at Pevensey. Save us, save England now, O King. Woe to Harold, twice tis not his to conquer and to save. Well he knows the lot is cast, England claims him to the last. South he marches to his grave. Gory stuff. Not to be confused, of course, with Stamford Bridge Football Stadium in London. But that's near where Raphael Valfish was born 67 years ago and where he was introduced to our penultimate bridge today, the bridge fitted to his cello. The bridge on a cello is a wooden structure over which the strings pass and which crucially conveys the vibrations of those strings to the body of the instrument whose resonance then creates the sound we hear. John Plush went to meet Raphael and his 300-year-old cello. Well, I have the pleasure and privilege to be sitting in the dressing room here at Worcester Cathedral of an internationally famous virtuoso cellist who, in his more than 40-year career to date, has recorded more than 70 discs accounting for almost every major work for the instrument. Many of Britain's leading composers have written material especially for him, Peter Maxwell Davies, John Taverner, and in addition to a glittering solo career, he has appeared with all the major symphony orchestras in all the major concert halls around the world. And he is Raphael Valfish. Raphael, you're here today in Worcester to play Elgar's Cello Concerto. Yeah. In Elgar's own cathedral, how much do you draw upon your environment for your performance? Oh, it's enormously inspiring to be in a place that the composer knew. It's certainly not very often that everything coincides, that the concert happens to be in the place that the composer knew well and loved. But um, it's a special thrill to to do that. I mean, yesterday I had time, we rehearsed in Malvern and I went to see the grave, which I'd never seen before, the family grave, uh, which is so touching because it's, first of all, the view is so wonderful and we, we know how much the countryside meant to Elgar uh, and how inspired he was by, by nature. And um, so to see that and uh, really after all that incredible fame and glory that he had in his life uh, the simplicity of the, the last resting place is very touching i think and the, the environment of the cathedral itself is a magnificent interior i see you, you were, as you were playing you were oh, looking around oh, how can one not look i mean you that stained glass window is probably one of the finest in the world i would imagine these buildings have such a history and mean so much to so many people quite inspiring uh, in in world war 2 your mother, Anita, survived Auschwitz concentration camp largely on account of the cello. Um, I looked through your discography and it occurred to me that you recorded a lot of Russian composers, a lot of English composers, not very many German composers. Is that a coincidence? Not at all. Uh, in fact, I've, I've just finished a series of recordings, um, five CDs, nine composers, nearly all of them were born in either Austria, lived in Vienna, or in 
Germany and had to leave because of the Third Reich, uh, because they were Jewish. And I made a project of finding uh, some really first-class pieces, that some of which were never played, because the composer, such as Karl Weigel, who was an Austrian composer, he literally just had to leave with whatever he could take with him, including a cello concerto which had never been performed. He wrote it in the 1930s. Uh, he went to America, and during his lifetime... It was never played, and so it, it fell on, on me. It was my joy to bring it to life about 80 years later. Um, and now I recorded it in Berlin for a German record label. But um, several composers actually came to England uh, and sought refuge here. People like Hans Gall, um, Franz Reitzenstein, um, Bertolt Goldschmidt. These are all people who are very much part of the British music scene. They were educators, they were conductors. Their music has only slowly now come to light. Um, all of them compose quite prolifically, actually. Um, and so I, what I've done is uh, record their cello concertos. It's a fantastic amount of repertoire. So, so there are some German composers. But, um, I mean, of course I play Beethoven, Bach, Schumann, Brahms. They're all German composers. You can't avoid Bach, really, can you? No. Uh, actually, Bach is the one I've com I've recorded least, but of course I play a lot. Now, cellos, yeah. you have quite a collection. I have the use of two very, very valuable ones. Uh, they're lent to me by two collectors, so I'm very lucky to, to be the caretaker. And then I have several that belong to me. Um, you can clearly only play one at a time. <laughs> so how do you choose yeah. which to play and why? Well, honestly, there's no doubt in my mind which is the best, So, um, which is the one I'm playing today. It is a very special instrument to me for several reasons. Made in 1733, in the 1940s, it belonged to Douglas Cameron. Douglas Cameron was also a wonderful teacher, and one of his best students ever was uh, Keith Harvey. And Keith Harvey was one of my very best friends, a kind of mentor to me. He sadly died last year, but he he was a great inspiration to me. He sold the cello, and it went to a collector in Germany. And then that person's family sold it, and another collector bought it who knows me and said, would I like to play on it? So it's kind of come back home, you know. So uh, I feel... Every time I play on this instrument, I feel I'm also with a friend. So I say it's it's more than just an instrument for me, that particular cello. Montagnana is the name of the maker. Stradivarius and Montagnana are the most sought-after makers of, of cellos. Um, so it's worth many millions. <laughs> yes. When you go home, do you listen to music to relax? If so, what do you listen to? Well, I don't really. Uh, that's the thing. I, I listen to music all the time and, and also when I'm working, you know, I'm having to research things and I listen and I listen and listen. Not as a relaxation where I'm just do, making a sort of no-brainer kind of thing. Uh, I, th I think for that I'd probably watch the telly, you know, or, or certainly watch films. I love to cook. I find that I find that the, one of the most relaxing and fun things to do. And uh, especially when people are happy with the results, you know, it's a bit like doing a concert in a way. For me, relaxing is 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 yeah, other things like being with my grandchildren, particularly. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've very kindly offered to play something 
especially for yeah. the talking magazine but before we hear that Raphael Valfish I have to say thank you very much thank you great pleasure right so I'll play the first prelude by Bach for solo cello Internationally famous concert cellist Raphael Valfish talking to John Plush and playing exclusively for the Worcester Talking magazine. Now for something completely different, a word bridge game, which could be chaotic or it could be a bit of fun. (laughs) This is a game that we play a lot in our family because we had children who hated going on walks and the only way that you could persuade them to keep going was to entertain them with endless games and lists and things like that so I've played this game many many times so I will explain the rules of the game and my team are going to have to play it because I'm in charge the concept is that you take one word for example fruit and I'll give them a second word which is stand and they have to think of the word in the middle which links both fruit and stand. And this is an example which they can read. So, Catherine, the answer is cake. 10 out of 10. Phil, 
My next word is life, the first word, and scout is the second word. And what might be the missing word in between? I'll boy, I think. Oh. Just showing off again. Okay, so I have a few here prepared earlier. And <laughs> fingers on the buzzers, team. The first two words, and I need your connecting word, are out and card. And the connecting word will be... You might write on this and send it home when you're on Post, holiday. Post, Postcard is the oh, answer. Right, yes. Yes. How about this one then? Sea and Burns. Sea mm. and Burns, the missing word here, uh, if I, I give you a clue. Is. Oh, <laughs> and from the recording side of the glass, tell me answer. It's, it's side. Yay! Seaside. Oh. Sideburn. Oh, and the two words are match and pin. Mm. There's a lot of serious thinking going on here. Mm. Should we come back to that one? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yes. okay, right. Here's another one then. So the next word is fur and bow. And... <laughs> <laughs> the clue is <laughs> furlong. Furlong, yay! Well done. Okay. Match and pin. Yes. Have a think about what you would need when you light a candle. Stick. Match stick. Stick pin is like it's a tie like a, pin. Like a tie oh, pin. Okay. And going to be difficult. Land <laughs> and rule. Mm. Shall I give you a clue? So, Phil, your previous um, career would have involved one of these if you'd been a maths teacher. Uh, and slide. Yes, slide rule. Right, carrying on. <laughs> so we have brow and we have root. Beat. Catherine's on fire. Oh. Yep. She's got uh, the hang. It's more about how it sounds rather than how it's written. So mm. we have burst. And we have ray. And the ray, if I tell you, is a kind of fish when it's... Uh, bursting and stingray? Bursting and stingray. Uh, um, and the last of all is, we'll go back to the word out and ground. I think we're in Australia here, aren't we? We certainly are. Yes. Uh -huh. yes. Out, back and background. Yes, yeah. yes, oh, excellent. Well, well, I'm glad I don't come on any, any walks with yes. you. I should have said that. <laughs> yeah. However, listeners, we thought we might get you involved and we could turn it into a bit of a competition. What we'd like you to do is think of a good bridge word between shake and mint. If you can write it on a scrap of paper and pop it in your envelope when you return it, or ring 01905... 767 766 and leave a message we'll give you the results in our next magazine so a word to link shake and mint and if you can think of any other bridge word riddles or any other game you'd like to play come to that let us know either by way of your return envelope or by ringing us on 01905 767 766 You'll probably get an answering machine, but don't let that put you off. Well, we played a little game earlier in the programme of Musical Bridges, where John challenged you to guess the titles of three songs, given only the middle eight of each. 
Here are the answers. You remember I played you the bridges from three popular songs by three composers, George Gershwin, Fats Waller and Kurt Weill, and you had to guess what the songs were, given only the bridge or middle eight to go on. Having said that the bridge or B section is usually a contrast to the A sections either side of it, I have to admit that in the Gershwin, although it has very different harmonies from the A sections, the B section does repeat the rhythm of the main melody, as you will hear as... turns into... You'll have recognised I Got Rhythm. The Fats Waller song was more difficult, I think. The middle eight goes something like this. And takes us to... behaving. Finally, the Kurt Vile. This song was written at the request of Houston and apparently Vile and his lyricist Maxwell Anderson knocked it out in just a couple of hours. The bridge goes like this. and links to this. September song. Not bad for a couple of hours' work. we set out on this edition with Jane's beautiful reading of Helen Lamb's poem, Spell of the Bridge. But now, here on the far side of our passage, at the end of the bridge, it's time to go our separate ways. Administration this month was by Carol Hartle, duplication by Sylvia and David Day, and the producer and editor-in-chief was John Plush. We'll be back in May with a look at communication. But until then, it's goodbye from each of us. Catherine? Goodbye. Jane. Goodbye. Phil. Xin Yen Kuaila. And from me, Pippa. Goodbye. And what does that mean? It means Happy New Year in Chinese. <laughs> okay, fine. Uh, shall I just say goodbye? <laughs>